0: Well, due to the uh, threat of winter weather today, I was in here on Friday recording my sermon to an empty uh, sanctuary, and so I guess we can see if the second time turns out any better than uh, the first time did, but uh, I suppose if the wheels fall off, we can just hit play on the video and and go from there, but (laughs) uh, I think I'll much prefer this as compared to the empty room anyway, so um when i think about uh when I think about the sections of the Bible uh, in which I spend the least amount of time reading reflecting studying, uh, there's little question that the books of the prophets would be that section um and i as I was thinking about that the other day just Kind of curious about why that is for me and I think for me it's a combination of a few things um, first for for a person with a very logical brain like I have the prophetic books often lack a consistent chronological flow and order to it that, that my kind of brain appreciates so it's you don't often see that as much in in the prophets um second uh, the the prophetic books are, are usually written in a poetic manner, which would be more of a weakness for my kind of a brain but but also something that's very difficult to translate across languages. I mean if you think about it that that makes perfect sense. If I were to write a poem in English and it had rhyming words and it had a certain meter to it. Well, if I translate that into another language, the rhyming is probably gone. The meter is probably gone. And so to read poetry in scripture, we lose some of that. So I think that can, can uh, lead to that as well for me. And then finally, because I think there are others that struggle with uh, these same things that I do, there are typically fewer sermons preached and studies written, and just overall attention drawn to the prophetic books, which only serves to increase the disparity in my own study of the Bible. Now, and I do not for a second consider the books of the prophets to be any less inspired than any other portion of scripture, and I need, I need to make sure to say that up front. But for a section of the Old Testament that is basically the same size as the entire New Testament, um, I, I spend quite a disproportionate amount of time in one compared to the other. And I'm not trying to take anything away from the importance of the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ, which is presented to us in the New Testament. I'm just simply making an observation about where I spend my time in the Bible, And perhaps maybe some of you would find yourself echoing uh, this same kind of thing when you think about your own interaction with the Bible. Well, for the next 10 weeks, uh, between now and Easter Sunday, um, I think we're going to remedy that, hopefully, just a bit. We're going to spend these next 10 weeks in the book of Isaiah. And, And by going at that pace... For about 10 weeks. We're going to find ourselves covering roughly six chapters a week. That that would be the average. So we're not going to go verse by verse how we've done recently in in books like 2 Corinthians or Titus or Philemon. Um, We're still going to proceed through it from beginning to end, but we're going to focus a bit more on, on the major themes that are seen in each section of the book of Isaiah. And so I did want to say, you know, in light of that, in light of that format that we'll be going through the book, if, if, if Bible reading isn't something that's part of kind of your regular routine, I would encourage you to consider reading the chapters in Isaiah on your own as we go through this book. Again, I said roughly six chapters a week is about what we'll be covering It'll work out nicely to read about a chapter a day during the week. And so I would just encourage you, if that's not something that uh, you typically do, to think about that. And, uh, and, I, and I, I think you'll find that experience to be beneficial in general, but I think also because we're leading up to Easter that you'll find, you'll find a lot of benefit there. You'll find a lot of fruit from, from doing that. So just, uh, just something to, uh, to think about in that area. Now, as is my habit when we start a new book of the Bible together, I want to make sure to set kind of that foundation where we look at who wrote the book, who were they writing it to, what's the, what's the context in which the book was written, what are some of the themes that, that are going to come out in the book. And the great thing about Isaiah is the first four verses of the book do that do all of that. So we're just going to start right in the very first four verses of Isaiah, and it's going to set this foundation for us that we need. So I would encourage you to to turn there if you'd like, Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So, right off the bat, there, when we think about some of these foundational uh, pieces of information, we see that Isaiah, the son of Amos, is the prophet after whom the book is named. Okay, now, Bible scholars would debate just how much of the book is directly attributable to Isaiah, and that discussion really focuses on chapters 40 through 66, kind of the last two-thirds or so of the book. Um, there's a pretty poignant shift that occurs in chapter 40. Uh, the writing style is a little different. The time frame in which it was written seems to be a bit different. And so as a result, debate takes place. What well, was that still Isaiah that wrote those words? Uh, was it uh, something that Isaiah had written formerly, and, or, or he's, he's looking ahead, or his disciples maybe are speaking for him, or maybe it's just his disciples adding on to what Isaiah wrote? You know, that that debate goes on, whatever the reality of the situation is, because we're not gonna solve it this morning, whatever the reality of that is, the entire book is inspired by God himself. God is the one that is speaking, so we're going to treat it as such. We're not going to get bogged down in the debate over who exactly penned the words of each portion, of the book of Isaiah. I mean verse 2 starts out and says, "Hear O heaven, o, hear O heavens give ear O earth, for the Lord has spoken." That'll guide us through all of the book. It is the Lord that speaks, whoever his mouthpiece or instrument is. That's okay. The Lord is the one speaking. So there's question about the original human author, but there's no question about the original audience. Verse 1 clearly states that this is written uh, concerning and to Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the point in history when the nation of Israel is not a unified nation anymore. They have split into two. So you have 10 tribes in the northern part of the land who have split off and and are called typically Israel. It makes it very confusing. We had united Israel. When they split, the northern 10 tribes were still called Israel. I may may often refer to them as northern Israel, just to help us kind of make that distinction. It's those 10 tribes. In the south, there were two tribes that were called Judah. And Jerusalem While while Jerusalem was the capital of united Israel, when they were united, Jerusalem remained the capital of southern Judah. So Isaiah is speaking directly to the southern two tribes, Judah and Jerusalem, the capital which represented those southern tribes. So we're in the divided part of Israel's history. Isaiah is speaking to southern Judah. Now a quick word about that. Because we as Americans can run into a problem when we read the Bible. Uh, One of the things that we can run into is we often imagine that the words were written directly to us. And I think this maybe comes from the fact that we as Americans are just trained to think that everything revolves around us. I mean, right? (laughs) We're just kind of, that's how we're brought up. We think America is the center of the world, the universe Everything And now as we progress through this book, we have to remember these words were not written to us. Now that doesn't mean they have nothing to say to us. It just means that they were not originally written to us. And so as a result, we shouldn't read Isaiah as if God is directly speaking to America. America is not God's chosen nation on earth. I know we're often led to think that way, but it just isn't true. There are some great Christian principles upon which our nation was founded. I'm grateful for those principles. God has a plan, I believe, for America, just like he has for every other nation on earth, but we are not God's chosen nation in the same way that Israel was, and I think still is. There's a difference there that that we really have to keep in mind as we read through this. As Gentile Christians, we are grafted into God's people. We are given a place, for sure, among God's people. But our nation is not God's chosen nation. Doesn't mean that I'm anti-America. Just means that we are not Israel. We are not God's chosen nation. As America. So, so as we read through Isaiah, we have to be careful about trying to use Isaiah's words to predict what's going to happen in our own country. We can't assume that just because God acted a certain way at a certain time in a certain context that he's going to do the exact same thing in our time and in our context. Instead, we ought to seek to understand what was God saying to his people then, what was he saying then? And once we get that, then we're in a much better position to understand what he might be saying to us now. Okay, so just something to keep in mind, and this isn't just for Isaiah. I would say this is for any time we read the Bible. There was always an original audience. We do well to know what God was saying to them then, and we go from there. So that'll be, that'll be what we uh, seek to do as we go through Isaiah. Uh, We see in verse 1 as well that these messages were given during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Those were all kings in southern Judah. So it's important to note that, that especially the first 39 chapters, they came before and during the time when the northern nation of Israel was being attacked and eventually taken into exile by Assyria. That was going on in northern Israel. Now, southern Judah wasn't immune from this threat by Assyria, and we're going to see that as we go through the book, but southern Judah should have understood the the danger of rebellion against God, and and they hopefully would have seen that through Isaiah's words, but also through what they saw taking place with their brothers and sisters up north in northern Israel. And, And And this is especially true when you consider the state of the relationship of southern Judah to God. From God's uh, perspective, which is the perspective that matters, things were not going very well in southern Judah. And and we see that in verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2 tells us that the people were as children who had rebelled against their father. God had, had uh, loved them, raised them, provided for them, but, but they had rebelled against him nonetheless. In verse three, I, I mean, it tells us God's people didn't understand his ways, right? So not only had they chosen to rebel, but they didn't even, it seems, understand why that was such a serious thing. And God basically called them dumber than an ox. Did you catch that? He said, even an ox knows its master's ways. You don't even know that. I mean, (laughs) that's quite the statement to make. I mean, this is a serious situation in which God's people find themselves. And then in verse four, uh, it, it, it tells us point blank that the people were a sinful nation. They were laden with iniquity. They were corrupt evildoers. They had turned their back on God. They had despised God. They were utterly estranged from God. This is quite the situation into which we are we are being thrown as we as we read this, and you can see why I gave that caution about reading this and immediately pointing to our own context. It can be so tempting to do do that very thing, and there might be similarities between our context and Israel's, uh, but we must first read this according to the context in which it was written. I mean God had God had chosen a people to be his own. He had chosen them. He had miraculously brought them forth from a husband and wife who were unable to bear children. Let you think about Abraham and Sarah, God brought his people forth from that situation. He had protected his people during 400 years of slavery. He had overthrown their slave masters and set them free. He had given them a land to call their own. He had blessed them with all they needed, not just to survive in that land, but to thrive in it. I mean, he had had given his very self to them in a way that he had not done for any other people on earth. And yet, these first few verses give us the background, give us the situation into which the prophet of Isaiah spoke. There was a major problem that had taken root in God's people, and that problem was sin. So as you go on through chapter 1, if you look verses 11 down through 15, I mean, what makes matters worse, the people were still acting as though they were loyal to God. And you see that in those verses. They talk about how the people still brought sacrifices to the temple. Uh, they, they still appeared before God on holy days. They still observed rituals and festivals. They even lifted up their hands to God in prayer. But God saw through all of it. I mean, he, it, was a, it was a scam, basically, is what it was. And so the the chapter goes on to reveal to us just how grave the situation was. And and, and I think the reality is, is quite strongly worded in verse 21. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. God says, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. From their beginning, the people had been chosen. By God. And multiple times throughout Scripture, God referred to them as His chosen bride. It's a term of endearment, it's a term of commitment, it's a term of intimacy. And then in verse 21, we see that they've now become as a whore. What a graphic description when you think about that. What pain that must have felt God to refer to His people, to His bride in that way. But that's the reality of the situation in which the people found themselves. What is God to do in such a situation like that? How is he to respond to his people who have rejected him in the ways that they have? I mean, we we can come up with a lot of our own answers to that to what God should do, how we think God should act. I think that, I think any parent who has watched their own child rebel against them maybe has an inside track to understanding this situation here. I think maybe they know better than most the inner turmoil of, of balancing discipline and mercy. I think they maybe know better than most the inability to make a person respond in love. Uh, They they know better than most the wide spectrum of emotions that, that a situation like that can bring. Someone who hasn't experienced those things might be quicker to question the discipline and the judgment that's going to be a regular part of God's messages through Isaiah. But, but maybe parents who have been there are, are slower to jump to those conclusions, uh, you know, as God, especially as God addresses his people as rebellious children. They maybe know better than most that the, the road won't be easy, and there's a long-term view that must be kept in focus. So that is the scenario in which we find ourselves as we go through Isaiah. Chapters two, three, and four really offer such a mix of both judgment and hope. Uh, At the beginning of chapter two, the first five verses, that's what uh, Matt read for us earlier, Uh, Man, God spoke about the joy and the peace that would eventually come. Jerusalem would be a place where God's presence dwelled and people from all nations would come to the city to worship God and and those people from all nations would come in total peace with one another. In the midst of such pervasive sin, God promised that, that restoration would come. There was hope still in the midst of that. But before that, difficult measures uh, would be taken. And so chapter 2, verse 6, all the way down through chapter 4, verse 1, really speaks of what would come before that restoration. In chapter 2, verse 9, we see that the people are going to be brought low, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, uh, their idols would need to pass away, and that, that's only going to happen as the people discover that those idols are powerless to, to save them from the judgment that was going to come upon them. Uh, in chapter 3, we see that their food and their water would be taken away, uh, their soldiers, their judges, their, uh, let's see, their prophets, their elders would be taken away their diviners, their magicians, their charmers would be taken away, their leaders would be taken away, their goodwill toward one another would be taken away. In short, nearly everything was going to be taken away from God's people. And we get to verse 18 of chapter 3, and I think this just sums it up perfectly. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 18. In that day... The Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness and instead of a rich robe a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty your men shall fall by the sword your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn empty empty she shall sit on the ground i mean that that's tough to read when you think about that's not just a story that is prophecy about what will take place among God's people. And again, we might question why God would allow such hardship to fall upon his beloved people. And I can't stand here and give you a perfect answer that's going to make us all feel good, because we all wrestle with that question, right? Why God works in the ways that he does, why he allows the things that he does, I think in this situation there's there's two things we can know for sure. One, God would allow this because he loves his people so much. Whether we're whether we're reading a passage of of prophecy of judgment or of prophecy of hope, God loves his people regardless. That is unchanging through it all. And so we know that. And then I think the other reason that God would allow this to fall upon his people is because the sin which they loved so much would destroy them. That it was a serious situation in which they found themselves. You know, only when they sat empty on the ground might they be willing to look up to God and, and return to him, humble themselves before him the people of God had a major sin problem. It was a problem that had plagued mankind. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and it's a problem that would continue to plague mankind. You can go all the way forward to this very moment. And that's maybe a point in this where we can clearly see ourselves in the story here that mankind today has a sin problem, just as God's people did in Isaiah's time. In fact, when we, I'm sure we love reflecting on the year of 2020, and we do it regularly, right, because it's so joyful, but when we think back over 2020, I think, you know, every one of the major events that probably come to mind, it's a result of sin, all right, a worldwide illness. Well, that, that's the results of a fallen world, marred by sin. Uh, injustice, riots in our country—that's the result of sin. People fighting against one another in every corner of the land, much less in the nation's capital itself—that's that's the results of sin. Uh, our, our world has been corrupted by an evil disease and I don't mean COVID, right? We're not talking about COVID. Sin is something that, that no quarantine, no vaccine will solve. You know, if, if, if the words from Isaiah contained nothing but a reminder of that truth, wow, I, I think it'd perhaps be the most depressing book in history, But while it does present the difficult truth about sin, God also offers glimpses and promises regarding the long-term view that does have hope connected to it. And so in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, we see another one of those hopeful promises uh, whenever, you, whenever you see the phrase branch of the Lord or, or the righteous branch in the Old Testament, it's always a prophecy about the coming Messiah, and we have that here in chapter 4. The promise from God here, it, it looks ahead to the time when one who would come who would, who would wash away the filth and cleanse the bloodstains and that person would come forth from God's people. I mean, even though the problem of sin ran so deep, God would not only bring something good from it, he would bring the solution from it. And that's what is being prophesied here, this, this branch of the Lord. We're blessed to live in a time after that branch has already come. 2,000 years ago, the, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus, ushered in the beginning of the end for sin and death. Uh, the, the clock is ticking, if you will, for sin and death. So we personally can be washed and cleansed of our sins as a result of Jesus' sacrifice of himself. But again, going back to this time, the people of Judah at that time, it was still only a promise, a future promise yet to be fulfilled. And so chapter five jumps right back into the problem, right back into it. God poetically speaks of his people as a vineyard, which he had planted and built and cultivated and cared for, but the only thing the vineyard produced was wild grapes. And so as a result, the vineyard would be trampled and it would be devoured. And you get to verses 26 down through the end of chapter 5, and God removes his protection over the people, and he signals the nations of the earth to come and to bring judgment upon his people. God's people had forgotten that their only hope was in him, they, they acted as if they could find hope in many other places. They rejected God, the very one who had given of himself to them. And so they're going to be reminded, albeit it's going to be through suffering, but they're going to be reminded that God was still their only hope. If he removed his guiding, protecting hand from them, then really they had no hope their only hope is in him. I don't like to preach messages about sin and the effects of sin. I don't, I don't like to ponder the reality of God's righteousness and judgment in the context of sin. I don't like to think about the fact that the same disease which, which infected God's people at that time still takes root in me today. Those aren't things that I like to to do and think about, but just because I don't like to think about it (laughs) because it makes me uncomfortable doesn't mean that I should avoid it. And I would say that's true as a human being. I I can't avoid the problem of sin within me, but I think this is true as a pastor as well. If you think about like a doctor, For instance, when I go to my doctor, I expect him to inform me of any serious issue that he finds. If he runs a scan and he finds something and he knows it's serious and he doesn't tell me about it ever, that's a problem, isn't it? Your mechanic, same thing. Take your car to the mechanic. If he finds a serious problem, you expect him to tell you about it. A uh, home inspector say, i mean we could we could list off a number of situations where that 's the case. I would say, as a pastor, I have to speak about the reality of the situation shown to us in god 's word and if i 'm not, then I'm not a pastor worth listening to, just like it wouldn 't be a doctor worth going to or a mechanic worth taking your car to um, I have to deliver the uncomfortable news that our sin runs deep. It's the title of the sermon today. Our sin runs deep. It's the reality that every one of us has to be confronted with in our own lives. You know, when we we think about uh, the challenge at the end of February that we talked about last week, the challenge to share the gospel uh, uh, with someone over a meal, you know, these can be some tricky waters to navigate, right? How do, we, how do we broach the issue of sin? What does that look like in that kind of a, a conversation? If we're honest, we probably don't like to think about sin in our own lives, much less in another setting like that. Uh, and, you know, we can pretend that there's no problem. We can, we can come here and we can continue to carry out religious rituals just like God's people were doing in the temple at that time. But the only thing that denial of sin is ever going to lead to is to judgment. It's the only thing it'll lead to. Time is eventually going to come when, uh, apart from Jesus, each person has to own up for their sin and, and pay the penalty. That, that's that's what awaits us apart from Jesus. And, and I don't say that to Try to invoke shame on us. I'm not trying to increase uh, regret or, or create despair or anything like that. I only say it again. Why does God do this with His people? I think it's because He loves them. Why do I stand here this morning and say, We have a problem? Mankind has a problem of sin. I have a problem of sin. I love you. I want you to find the washing and cleansing that only comes through Jesus. And next week, next week's going to be a much more hopeful week as we, as we uh, focus on God's magnificent grace in the midst of our sin. I kind of look forward to that sermon a little more than this one this morning. But, uh, but while I want to say that there is hope, I don't want to jump too fast uh, too fast past the problem of sin that's presented to us. We have to come face to face with our sin, just as God's people had to do at that time. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And so we can double down and try to stand up under God's judgment. We can attempt that if we want to. Uh, or we can throw ourselves at his feet and and place our hope solely in his grace and mercy, which we'll get into even more next week. We can try and stand up under judgment. We can throw ourselves at his feet. One of those responses leads to a much better outcome. Um, and it's not the one where we rely upon ourselves. It's only the one where we humble ourselves before Christ and rely upon him. Ask him to fix this problem of sin within ourselves. So again, I know that's not the most uplifting message I've probably ever preached, but it's a reality for all of us, who we are apart from Christ. And again, there is hope touched on it this morning. We'll talk about it even more next week, and it'll come up again and again through the book of Isaiah. That's why the title of the series is God is Our Salvation. And you can think about that in maybe a couple different ways. It's God that is our salvation, but there's salvation. Even though sin runs deep, there is salvation for us, and it's found in God himself. So let's stand together and let's come before God and let's do so humbly as we close our time, recognizing this problem of sin that we've been born into, that we deal with. Heavenly Father, we, God, we know. We know that we've sinned. We know that we've fallen short of your glory. And God, it, it's, it's tough to read uh, even these first five chapters in Isaiah that uh, speak of that, um, that problem among your people. And perhaps it's even tougher when we think about our own lives and, and recognize that, that we're no different, that apart from you we are just as lost in sin, that we are dumber than an ox as well, that we've turned our back on you. And so, God, we know that we need you. We thank you that that even in the midst of uh, these prophecies about sin and the judgment upon sin, that there's hope. That you are at work. That you are bringing about salvation. God, that we can find that in you. We're so grateful. For that this morning. Would you, would you help us to think clearly and to recognize the seriousness of our sin? And again, God, not in a way that, that shame or despair is heaped upon us, but in a way that drives us to you, that, that causes us to humble ourselves at your feet. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your salvation poured out upon us.